It's the most well-known Christian prayer in history, but have we been missing the point of the Lord's Prayer? This is the Bible Reset Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin, here with Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. Last time on the Bible Reset, we briefly unpacked the key elements of stellar Bible engagement. So today we're going to start a short series that presents an example of how some of that actually works out in practice. We'll be looking at a well-known passage, which is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And specifically, we're going to explore how our understanding of this prayer changes when we read it in context, both its immediate surrounding context and within the larger context of the biblical narrative as a whole. We think that a big part of successfully reading the Bible big is finding threads and connecting dots. Uh, seeing themes that start early and then come to new and deeper expression as the story continues. I think it might be good, uh, guys, to acknowledge that one of our problems with the Lord's Prayer is our apparent overexposure to it, Mm -hmm. kind of a familiarity breeds contempt. And, you know, we've heard it so many times before, especially if you're part of a liturgical uh, tradition and in some ways, it's become kind of rote. I think you used the word tame in your notes, Glenn. Uh-huh. Right. And, you know, one of the things we're going to learn in this series <laughs> that this is anything but, but a tame prayer. And, you know, oftentimes it gets prayed with kind of a sanctimonious tone as well. The minister, whoever the, the reader is, finds a different a different voice, which makes it even more other otherworldly, and so we're we're going to push past that, and we're going to see mm. that this prayer is a powerful prayer. Uh, at times, it is even a shocking prayer, and we're going to begin by looking at what this prayer meant and how it impacted the first group of people that heard it, which of course were Jesus' disciples, and so. You know, that's one of the things that we always focus on here. Before we ask, what does it mean to us? Which is, you know, I've heard many uh, series on the Lord's Prayer, and I've preached a number of those series. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, we kind of just jump into the contemporary scene. But we want to begin by asking not what does it mean now, but to explore, you know, what did it mean then? Yeah, and most of our listeners probably know that the Lord's Prayer comes up twice in the Gospel books, once in Matthew and then also once in Luke. And it would take a little bit too long to explore both versions and their differences and why they're different. Um, But Matthew's version, which is the more familiar version to us, is longer. And he actually adds some parallel secondary lines to expand on the meaning for his Jewish audience, which is kind of a typical feature of Hebrew poetry. So we're going to stick with Luke's shorter, punchier version, which we think more likely expresses the earliest wording of that prayer. I think to get this prayer right and what Jesus is teaching his disciples there, um, we have to see a little bit about Luke's overall portrayal of Jesus. Crucially, Luke tells the story of Jesus in light of Israel's bigger story with God. Jesus is fully embedded in Israel's first century world, announcing the long-awaited arrival of God's final purposes for his people. And then in a fascinating passage, it occurs just a little before Jesus teaches his disciples this prayer, 
we read that Jesus himself went up on a mountain to pray. And then this happens. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Excuse me? They talked about his exodus? Yes, his exodus. Just after this encounter, Luke says that Jesus set his face like flint, the older translations would say, to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is steadfast and determined now to face his final hour. It is his final confrontation in Jerusalem, leading to his death, resurrection, and then ascension, that the great event will happen. And Luke says this great event, the, the term that summarizes what all that is, is his exodus. I think this is one way that Luke signals that the entire mission of Jesus was conceived in terms of a fresh exodus experience for God's people. And this is precisely what the prophets had foretold. We don't often hear this, but throughout the prophets, we are going to see that the, the promise of God's great future was couched or framed in terms of a redo of Israel's original exodus experience. Hearing his people's cry for help, and seeing their continued oppression, God would come down again and act decisively for their liberation. Here's one example from the prophet Jeremiah. He writes, However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, As surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but it will be said, As surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north, and out of all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. So this is a new exodus, a different kind of exodus, given Israel's new kind of oppression. This new exodus idea is all over the place in the prophets. God's great new act of redemption would follow the pattern of his previous one, the first exodus. He will rebuild the tabernacle and live with them. He will cleanse the people of their sins. He will return the scattered people back to their land. He will write his law on their hearts. He will once again show himself to be Israel's father, the one who loves his firstborn, which is what he is described as in the first Exodus experience as described in the book of Exodus. So everything about Israel's hope for the future screams, God, do it again. Bring us another Exodus. But this time, it would be a greater, permanent liberation, bringing everything God wants not only for Israel, but even for the world, which has also been living in the land of darkness. So, overall, we can say Luke positions the work of Jesus, especially in its culmination in the last week of his life in Jerusalem, as bringing the promise of Israel's new exodus to fulfillment. Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets, are there to encourage Jesus to press on to complete his saving work. Hmm. That's so interesting. And, you know, I grew up reading the Gospels and just paying zero attention to this idea that Jesus's final days occurred <laughs> during the Passover celebration. Like that just didn't compute. It, it was just kind of a 
interesting detail, I guess. But when you think about it, um, this is that festival where all of the Jewish people would be celebrating the first Exodus. And then, like you said, Glenn, simultaneously hoping for this new one, this bigger and greater and more permanent one. And N.T. Wright and, and others have written about the crucial importance of the timing of all of this and how Jesus could have chosen any number of different festivals or times during the year to have his final days and final showdowns in Jerusalem. But instead, he intentionally chooses Passover as another way to reiterate kind of this Exodus theme of his work. Yeah, I think this is a reoccurring theme for uh, the Institute for Bible Reading, that these kinds of accounts are not like free-floating stories. Mm-hmm. And yet we oftentimes are introduced to them in that way. And again, without um, belittling you know, modern preachers, because I myself you know, was one of those characters at one point, I remember teaching a series, actual multiple series on the Lord's Prayer, and I just kind of dove right in, <laughs> um, mm. you know, immediately began to talk, what does, what does the word father mean? And, you know, what does it mean to us today? And maybe you had a bad father. And so, you know, the, the term father actually conjures negative things for you. But, you know, unfortunately and sadly, uh, I didn't position this smaller story within the larger story. And that's one of the things that we're encouraging ourselves to do if we're going to be good Bible readers. And so, you know, the first thing that we do is we locate where in the story does, uh, does, this, does the Lord's Prayer occur. And as we've just been talking about, it happens right at the time that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem for his own exodus. And good Bible reading notice these, notices these things, and it makes these kinds of connections. And then, you know, we notice the setup is very important here, too. It's the disciples that have seen Jesus praying, and so one of them says, Lord, teach us to pray. And then this phrase, just as John taught his disciples. And so, you know, we learn from studying rabbinic history that first century rabbis who had followers, they would teach their disciples a distinctive prayer, kind of a signature prayer. And apparently, John the Baptist, you know, had done one of these as well. And it would be fascinating, wouldn't it, to know what that was? It was, you know, give us this day our daily locusts and wild honey, you know? <laughs> right. I know. It's one of those places in the Bible which happen like, wait, it refers to something, but you don't get the, the details. You're like, wait, what was that? Like, what did John teach his disciples? I mean, it would be fascinating to see how he was positioning his disciples different than what Jesus was doing with his because of their own understanding of how the story was was progressing. I just think, wow, I wish we had that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So at any rate, uh, at this point in the story, it's now Jesus's turn. Mm. And again, as he shares his prayer, he's not simply sharing a prayer. He's sharing his own agenda, if you will. And he's sharing something whereby which his followers are going to be identified by this prayer. So his, his mission is going to be revealed in this prayer. And the disciples' identification is going to be revealed in this prayer, which is maybe one of the reasons that we might call it the disciples' prayer, of course, instead of, instead of Jesus' prayer. 
And so um, we, we, again, oftentimes skip over these things, but I would say, and Glenn, I've conferred this with you because you kind of took the lead in putting together the notes here, but every single line of this prayer that Jesus taught is rooted in the prophetic hope for God's return to save Israel. And there's a very good chance that when Jesus began to share this prayer, and they're, they're of course, listening carefully, uh, you know, to learn how to pray from, from their rabbi, that Jesus' disciples would have immediately recognized that this prayer was tied to Israel's first exodus. You know, give us this day our daily bread was a giveaway that this was referenced mm, yeah. um, to, to manna. And so uh, as we, you know, spend the next couple of weeks launching into this, this prayer, if we'll read it through these contextual lenses, I think we're going to find that this goes from a mundane prayer and a tame prayer to something that's very specific and maybe even risky. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point you raised, Paul. And I, I do think the disciples would have would have gotten this. Um, I think sometimes we feel like, you know, we read some scholar or we hear some preacher talk about some background information and, it's, and it seems like a great revelation that unlocks the meaning in a special way. Kind of what we're trying to say about the Lord's Prayer in this series. But I think we forget, like, look, his disciples were immersed in the Jewish world of the first century. We know that the Psalms was a very popular book. And so when you read like Psalm 77, Psalm 78, recounting the story of the Exodus and how God had saved Israel, all these elements are right there in those Psalms. I mean, they knew the prophets, they knew the story in the book of Exodus. So I think this was part of their regular worship at the temple, their teaching in the synagogues. Um, this was stuff that they were hearing all the time. And so I think they were fully present in this sense of we're looking for God to come down and save us again on the pattern of the Exodus. So when Jesus taught them this prayer, I think it would not have come across to them as like, oh, well, he's just telling us to ask for regular things, you know. Um, we're just praying to make sure we have enough food. We're mm. asking him to forgive us and just generically asking for these spiritual things. I, I think the overtones and the connection to the Exodus would have been really clear to them, given their situation as immersed in the hopefulness that was Israel's life in the first century. So the thing that happened, I think, is that both translation and tradition have kind of combined to distance us from this first meaning. I mean, the, the prayer has taken on a life of its own in the church, I think apart from its historical setting, that really, I think, gives us a much richer, deeper, and as we've said, a much bolder meaning there. So um, Luke's version would sound something like this in a typical modern translation. We would say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. That's it. Simple, straightforward. We've heard it a million times. Maybe we aren't exactly sure what the word hallowed means. It's kind of a funny word. It's not something we say every day. Um, also, it's really interesting in Luke's version, 
that the familiar ending, for thine is the kingdom and the power, etc., it's not even there in Luke. And just a side point there about Jewish practice uh, in the time of Jesus, the final words of praise and thanks in a prayer like this would be improvised by who was ever praying at the time. And so it would be different every time. Instead of just repeating the same words that, that we know, whoever was praying the prayer would improvise the, the, the doxology at the end, the, the praise and the thanks to God. So that's why Luke doesn't include it. It wasn't part of the core prayer that Jesus would have taught in the first place. So, over the next two episodes of the Bible Reset, we'll be going through the lines here one by one, showing how they were all rooted in what happened in Israel's first exodus from Egypt, but now updated and expanded to address God's new liberation event. The new exodus is about gaining freedom from Israel's deeper and more persistent enemies, not Egypt, not Rome, but the enslaving powers of sin and death. These are the real threats to human flourishing that God intends for his creation. Then, and when we're done going through those lines one by one, in the next two episodes, in our final episode, we'll bring this all home and say, okay, this is very historically specific, and we can see that it was tied to Jesus' mission of bringing the new exodus but how do we pray it today? What sense does it make for us if we're not living in that situation of those disciples in the first century? And so we'll talk about what does it mean to pray the Lord's Prayer today, given what Jesus has done, and also what is yet to come. I think there's a live, um, very live hopefulness that should be in us as well. And we'll talk about that. You know, before we leave this particular session, which was all about contextualizing uh, the Lord's Prayer, I think maybe we should note that uh, something about the tone of this mm. prayer, because frankly, um, it's a tone that should be rendered more strongly. And we see this, it's fascinating, in both the Eastern Church and the Western Church, that the prayer was regularly introduced by the words, we make bold to pray. Hmm. We make bold to pray. So, you know, why, why bold? What's so bold about, about this prayer? As you've said, Glenn, isn't this just, you know, asking for regular things in our, our regular life? And the, the reality is, is that as we dig into this prayer, we're going to see that Jesus taught us um, that we can challenge God, <laughs> that we can tell God, in a sense, what we want him to do. And if you look at the, the, uh, the Greek here, the petitions are actually in the imperative form, which means that they carry a tone of urgency. And Glenn, you put this in the notes. And so <laughs> if people want to you know, write in, come to Glenn about this. You said <laughs> Throwing there's, me under even, the bus. there's even, even a sense here that, that we're demanding mm. um, thing, things of God. So the kind of the tone is, look, you're the God of salvation. You, you saved Israel before. Jesus' name means salvation. You know, then why aren't you doing more saving? Right. <laughs> and uh, let's let's pick up the pace, if you will. And, you know, we see this throughout the, I think there's three different Psalms 
where um, I think they're all David's Psalms, where he says to God, rouse yourself. Yeah. The more modern way of saying that is uh, time to wake up. And, you know, we see the same thing in Job's prayers. Uh, People talk about, oh, you know, this person has the patience of Job. And whenever I hear that, I think to myself, (laughs) these people have never read Job because Job is not patient. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, all he does is complain and he pretty much tells God what God needs to do and when, when God needs, needs to do it. So this, this tone is present Mm. and it's not irreverent. And we're going to actually see in the Lord's prayer that there's something here, even about an invitation to be strong with God. He's going to be strong with us, and we can be strong with him. And so reading it in the imperative form, it probably sounds something more like this. Father, make your name holy. Bring your kingdom. Give us today our daily bread, and maybe even our bread of tomorrow. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone indebted to us. Don't bring us to the time of trial. And so every line that we've just recited, we're going to look at more closely in, uh, in our upcoming sessions. And that'll be fun. Yeah, I am. Look, I'm tempted right now to start talking about those lines and how this actually works. But we'll we'll save it for the next two sessions where we really get into the details of this and uncover the connections to the Exodus that would have been heard in the first century and why this wording matters. But just hearing you read that, Paul. I mean, the strength of those verbs, make, you know, bring, give, forgive, don't do this. Um, it's very strong. And as you said, um, I think the, the early church recognized this is a little bit edgy. And so they always introduced it with the words, we make bold to pray. And um, it, you almost get the idea, if Jesus hadn't told us to do it, we may not dare to do it. But he, he, he gave it to us. All right. So now we can kind of summarize the big idea. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus was essentially teaching his disciples to implore God to make these things happen, all of them, right now, in and through the work of Israel's Messiah, Jesus himself. He's basically telling them, pray down the new exodus. Reach out and pray the future into the present. What God has long promised, he's going to do now through me, but we have to tell your father to do this. In other words, be very bold with him. In short, the Lord's Prayer is actually a revolutionary prayer. It's a call for God to do everything he's promised for his people. Rescue them, set them free, and then restore them and let them flourish. The Lord's Prayer says, now is the time. Jesus is the means, so God the Father, do it. And it's, it's as strong as can be, and it kind of makes me sad that our, our regular practice and even the way we translate it, you know, hallowed be thy name, I, I just think it doesn't carry the strength of these verbs and the meaning that was there, and we've, we've just kind of softened it. And um, it's, I think it's not what Jesus intended. So I hope we can help our listeners kind of regain an understanding of the strength and the boldness of this prayer. Yeah, and Glenn and Alex, uh, would you guys agree then that 
this isn't the only instance where we see Jesus' invitation to pray boldly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's is mm-hmm. I think in the passage of Hebrews, let us come. You know, since we have such a great high priest, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. And then when Jesus tells these myriad parables about the subject of prayer, there's this element of boldness woven throughout. There's a a man, you know, who has guests that come to his house and they've come unexpected and, you know, the larder is empty, you know, there's no bread. And so in the middle of the night, he goes and he slams on the door of a neighbor and says, hey, I've got guests. Can you bring me some bread? And the guy says, hey, (laughs) we're in our pajamas, Um, you know, (laughs) come again tomorrow. And he keeps pounding on the door. And, you know, that's not the only story we could probably go on and on here. But there is that element of of real faith has a sense of boldness and challenge to it. Yeah. It, I mean, it's right there in Luke's gospel, very close to this passage, the story that you talked about. And and then Jesus also mentions the woman who won't let the unjust judge kind of get any rest. Like he, she keeps calling to him until he will do what, what she's asking. And he says, I, I don't really give a rip about people or justice, but this woman is going to wear me out if I don't do something for her. So I will. And Jesus says, how much more will your heavenly father give you if you keep asking him? So there is this, like, be a little bit impertinent. Like, tell God, this isn't right what's happening, and we need you to do something. And so I think this fits right in with the boldness that Jesus kind of uh, is teaching throughout his ministry. And again, there's, there's a certain strain of piety within the church that says, no, you don't talk to God like that. Like that that isn't reverent. But I think we can hold our respect and our awe for God and our reverence um together with this strong sense of Jesus himself told us to pray to him urgently. And so that's the direction we're going to go with. Um you know, we've been talking about how the early church handled this and I think they picked up clearly um how bold it was, you know, the fact that Jesus told them to do this. It's also interesting that the early church brilliantly, I think, connected the Lord's Prayer directly to its observance of the Lord's Supper. So in the liturgy of the early church, they prayed a new Exodus prayer right before they shared a new Exodus Passover meal. They they brought those mm. things together, and it just mm. reinforced the strength of the new Exodus theme. Um, clearly, that's how they saw it. Both of these things, by the way, were treated very carefully. Cyril of Jerusalem, who, um, you know, would instruct people um, before they were being baptized. Typically in the early church, people were baptized on Easter Sunday. Um, this is like in the fourth century. And, and Cyril says, look, only those people who've been catechized and baptized can even say these words. So just because you professed your faith in Jesus, you weren't even really allowed to pray the Lord's Prayer yet. So it wasn't until you'd been taught and then were baptized, and then you could join the the second half of the Christian worship service where they would pray the Lord's Prayer and share the Lord's Supper. That only happened for some of the people in in the community. And so again, um, very special thing, and the early church caught it. I think we need to recapture that. It's a very bold and risky thing to tell God what to do. But Jesus is the one who told us to. 
so I guess we dare to do it. And this is what we'll be looking at in the next few weeks. I'm personally looking forward to it. And it's going to be fun to go through these line by line and, uh, and see the depth behind them. So, uh, so over the next couple of weeks, we'll go through, through each line of this prayer and, and unpack it a little bit and show how each line connects back to this super important Exodus theme that's present throughout the, the big story of Scripture. And then after that, like we said, we'll, we'll discuss what the Lord's Prayer actually means for modern day Christians in light of this context. You know, like you had said earlier, Paul, it, it's almost like there's this perception and I fall into it sometimes too, where like there's almost a swamp of context between the words and modern life. And we don't want to wade through the swamp because we're scared that we'll get stuck there and it won't mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. end up meaning mm-hmm. anything for mm-hmm. us today. Right. But I, I'd say pretty much every time you uh you actually pick up way more meaning and uh way more kind of helpful implications by going through through that hard work of understanding what it meant for the first recipients um and then kind of carrying that forward into what it means for us today so so we'll get into that as well it'll be a fun series and uh and just explore this thing that's become so familiar to us that maybe it's become a little bit tame and a little bit boring so looking forward to it As always, this episode is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of monthly donors supporting the work of the Institute for Bible Reading. If you'd like to support us, then joining Changemakers is a great way to do it. You can learn more and sign up at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.